Now at this point, we have the privilege of welcoming the Reverend Dane Johansson to lead us in a devotional on the uses of Scripture from the locus classicus of uh, the doctrine of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. The Reverend Dane Johansson serves as pastoral intern at Reformation OPC in Apache Junction, Arizona. He studied at Moody Bible Institute and is a current BDiv student at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. He was ordained in the Southern Baptist Church and planted Agros Reformed Baptist Church in Gilbert, Arizona. I will add as well that Dane is a contributor to this fine volume edited by uh, brothers uh, McShaffrey and Riddle. I, I bring to your attention Dane's essay in particular uh, as he addresses something that complements very nicely the theme for this conference, Holy Scripture and the Reformation. His chapter is entitled, The Reformed Christian's Text. This would be an excellent follow-up uh, to this conference. Dane, please open God's Word for us. It is indeed a great honor and privilege to be here with you all. If you would please stand and turn in your scriptures, your copy of the scriptures if you have one, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. As you're turning there, let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon the reading and hearing of his word. O Lord God Almighty, we again are thankful for another day that has been graciously given to us by thy hand, O God. Lord, as we open thy word, we ask, O God, by the same spirit which did inspire this word, which has preserved it and given it to thy church, to thy people, that we might use, that we might profit thereby, that we might proclaim it to the nations, O God, that same spirit would also enlighten it to our minds now, apply it to our hearts, and help us to live in accordance with it. O God, bless the labors of this day. May they be good for the good of thy church and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Amen. 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. I am to speak on just three verses on the use of Scripture this morning in this devotional exercise. But even in a brief devotional exercise like this and just taking three verses, we have to keep the context of Paul's words before us. We live in an age where Scriptures are plucked from their native soil constantly and transplanted into whatever place the budding theologian thinks is best, but plants, as Charles Spurgeon said in regard to this, bear their best fruit in their own native soil. The dominant theme of Paul's second letter to the young pastor Timothy, one could say, is false teaching 
and false teachers. And this is especially true in the section spanning from chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 5. And our passage, 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17, is found towards the end of that section when, in which he's really driving home the, the, the concept and the theme of false teachers and false teaching. But in chapter 3 specifically, Paul's main point isn't necessarily to focus on false teaching itself as so much as to show the young pastor Timothy how he should handle false teaching, how he should combat false teaching, how he should go against false teaching, what he should do about false teaching. The glorious statement on Scripture's divine authority and its utility, its usefulness, is set in the context of how Timothy was to navigate, how Timothy was to combat, and how he was to resist false teaching. Paul notes at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1, the deadly nature of false teaching in the last days. Left unchecked, left uncombated, he says that false teaching will bring perilous times with it. It will cause men to grow selfish, cause them to grow unholy, to be despisers of those that are good, and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It gives to men a form of godliness, a form of godliness that that doesn't have any actual power, a godliness that abuses women and is ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Those who teach such false doctrines, the Apostle Paul says, are like Janus and Jambres, who withstood Moses. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. In other words, Paul doesn't wink at false doctrine, does he? He doesn't wink at false doctrine. He sees that it really is a real danger. But Paul also sees and tells Timothy that it's not an insurmountable Danger. It's not an insurmountable danger. False teaching shall not have the final say. For he tells Timothy in chapter 3, verse 9, But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men. Well, how will this be so? How, how is this tide going to turn? Well, Timothy is to follow Paul's doctrine, manner of life, Purpose and faith, verse 10. He must continue in the things which he has learned from the inspired Apostle Paul, 3.14. This is because nothing that the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy, has taught Timothy, contradicts what Timothy came to know in the Holy Scriptures from a child. The same spirit which spoke in the Scripture that Timothy had known from a child speaks through the Apostle Paul to him now. The way, Timothy, is to combat false teaching, to turn the tide of ungodliness, is by turning to Scripture. And all Scripture, whether it's in Timothy's Tanakh or in Paul's letter to him, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If Timothy, as a man of God, was to be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, the good works of living unto God, the good works of shepherding those under his care, the good works of resisting false teachers and combating false 
teaching. If he is to do this, then he must go to Scripture. He must use Scripture in faith. Now, it's, it's no different in our day. In fact, false teaching has always come by the devil's design, by his stratagems against the church. We heard from Reverend McShaffrey last night in the days of Josiah even. The Sodomites are outside the temple. There's witches in the land. There's idolatry rampant all throughout the land of God's people. And we've seen this all throughout church history. And indeed, we see it today, don't we? We, we, we even in the Presbyterian church, you know, sometimes I have to, when I tell people that I'm Presbyterian, I can see it in their eyes. They're a little concerned. And I have to assure them I'm not Lesbyterian. I'm Presbyterian. It's not that there's sodomites just next to the temple now. We have sodomites in the pulpits. And, and so our day as well, we must combat false teaching. How are we to do it? Are we to do it with, with different programs? Where should we go? Well, in the same place that Paul tells Timothy to go. In the scriptures, we have all that we need. Indeed, quoting from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter, par, chapter 1, paragraph 6, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, end quote, is to be found nowhere else but in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Do we need more relevance to combat false teaching? Do we need to ape the culture? No, we need to go to the Bible and stand upon it and use it. We need to be under its authority and thus use it. This is because the Scriptures are given by inspiration of God. The Bible is not a collection of man's thoughts and opinions about divine things, good ideas of how to, how to live in light of the divine, of how to live in light of being spiritual. Nor is the collaborative work between God and man, where, where God writes some, man writes some, man is writing and God nudges him in the right direction. No, that's not what it is at all. The Bible is not a useful resource for us to use as church leaders, as pastors, as husbands, as fathers and mothers. No, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the very foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In fact, as the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This means, as Thomas Watson said, that the scriptures are, quote, the library of the Holy Ghost. Indeed, quote, the two testaments are the two lips by which God hath spoken to us, end quote. All of it. The two lips by which God hath spoken to us. This is what we are to understand by inspiration. That God, as John Calvin said, in person speaks in them. God is speaking in the scriptures. When we open the scriptures, God is speaking. It's not the made-up sayings of those who are inspired by their contemplation of the divine. No, it is the very word of God. As if we could put our fingers over his mouth and feel the puffs of air coming out. It is God-breathed. Scripture is breathed out by God, and thus it is inspired in every part, in every word. It is God's word in toto, not insofar as we can best reconstruct it, 
not insofar as we can best discern it, not insofar as we are willing to submit to it. The Bible is not like a TGC article. It's not a church growth resource pamphlet. It is the very word of God. It is no longer in vogue in our day and age. If you attend seminary, you know this, to speak of mechanical inspiration of Scripture. It's no longer in vogue to speak that way. Now we're supposed to speak of the organic inspiration of Scripture. I won't go into the nuances and differences there, but like it or not, our Reformed fathers did not shy away from such language of mechanical inspiration. And I think it comes much closer to how the Bible describes itself. For example, the great Anglican Archbishop James Usher said that the human authors of Scripture were, quote, God's secretaries. And thus, God is, quote, its sole author. Johannes Heidegger said that the Holy Spirit so guided the human penman that it is right to describe the Bible as, quote, dictated by the Spirit, end quote. William Ames called the human authors, quote, instruments of the Spirit. And according to William Ames, God by the Holy Spirit, quote, dictated and suggested the very thoughts? No, the very words with a, quote, suitable tempering to each human author's manner of speaking and historical condition, end quote. It is therefore the word of God from beginning to end, containing, as Thomas Watson put it, our credenda, the things which we are to believe, and our agenda, how we are to live. Or as Paul puts it, everything the man of God needs to be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The scripture, inspired by God, is profitable to be used for doctrine. That is to teach us what we are to believe. The doctrines and commandments of men, whether in the days of Josiah, whether in the days of the Reformation and the Council of Trent, or in our day as well, the doctrines and commandments of men are false. But the word of God furnishes pure doctrine, does it not? Nobody got transgenderism from the Bible. That didn't come from searching the scriptures diligently, from using the scriptures faithfully. That means if the scriptures indeed are the very word of God that are to teach us what we are to believe, that we should believe nothing unless it is taught in the Holy Scriptures. We should believe nothing unless it is taught in the Word of God. No system, no belief, no opinion, however dear it might be to us, may be rightly held if it is not biblical. And whatever the Bible teaches, no matter how contrary it is to some previously held belief that we had, it must be embraced entire. Our minds What we believe, how we view the world, must be shaped, nay, governed by the word of God. The inspired scriptures are therefore profitable for doctrine. They are also profitable for reproof. And I take that as meaning, with Calvin, correction of false teaching. Many of us in this room hold to various and sundry opinions regarding secondary matters of the faith. But let us be sure in holding those that we hold them from an honest and a humble conviction that they are taught in Scripture and for no other 
reason. That means that the moment we discover that our beliefs are out of step with God's word, let us therefore be reproved by it. Let us be corrected by it. In other words, I don't want to be a Presbyterian if it's not biblical to be one, to which some of my brothers here in this room would say, good, then stop. But that's where we can have that discussion, right? We must be under subjection to the word of God. The inspired scripture is profitable to reprove us. No matter how painful that might be, no matter where that might lead us, as long as it leads us in submission to God's word. God's mind is laid out before us in the sacred page, in the sacred inspired book. Therefore, let us be subject to it. But God is not only concerned with what we believe. He's also concerned with our lifestyles. The scriptures are therefore profitable for correction and for instruction in righteousness. In scripture, false teachers are more often identified by the fruit of their lives than by what they teach. It's interesting to notice if you've seen, uh, done a study of this throughout scripture. A false teacher is not just someone who teaches contrary to the word of God. They are that. But also lives contrary to it. Jesus says to beware of false prophets. And then he adds, and by their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. Scripture is profitable for correcting the way we live and for teaching us how we are to present our bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. Brethren, the scriptures are profitable for all that we need. Therefore, we must use scripture. We must use scripture. It's good to know these things. But that's not of much value if we don't use it, as we heard last night, the law laid up in the temple. The scriptures sat there in the temple. They didn't do anybody any good, did they? Just laying there. We must use the scriptures. As Philip Henry, the father of the great Matthew Henry, said, quote, Conversion turns us to the word of God as our touchstone to examine ourselves, as our glass to dress by as our rule to walk and work by, as our water to wash us, as our fire to warm us, as our food to nourish us, as our sword to fight with, as our counselor in all our doubts, as our cordial to comfort us, as our heritage to enrich us. End quote. Why do we turn anywhere else? Why do we turn anywhere else when all that we need for every good work is found right here? How are we to live as Christians in this society? How are we to raise our families? We we look around and we, we see the effects of false teaching around us. We see the way our culture is going, the way our nation is going, the way our churches are going. And we go, what do we do? We have to turn to the scriptures. We have to use the scriptures. How are we to lead, govern, and structure our families, our churches, our societies, our lives has all been given to us in the book. We must therefore use them. But we must use them the right way. When there's so much confusion, so much division, so much infighting within the church today, I don't think we can say that we are rightly using them. Paul says that the scriptures are profitable. That word means useful for our good. It is therefore not lawful or permissible to use them in any unprofitable way, as John Calvin said. 
What does it mean to use the scriptures in an unprofitable way? It means, I think, in light of verse 15, to use them without faith, to use them unbelievingly. The Bible, sitting on a table or locked up in the temple, or in the hand of Bart Ehrman even, remains true. It remains authoritative. It remains the revealed will of God pertaining to all matters of life, faith, and godliness. But to leave it sitting closed or to take it up with an unfaithful heart is to use it unprofitably. The scriptures are able to make one wise unto salvation just by sitting there? No, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Yes, and amen, to approach the Bible as a text critic. We heard the distinction between the higher criticism and the lower criticism last night. But even the lower critics, to approach the Bible as a text critic, excited to discover how the Bible will change next year in over 200 places, is to come to the Bible with doubt and unbelief. In other words, it's to use it unprofitably. But do not be deceived. Let us who, who hold the scriptures, hold this historic Protestant view of the scriptures, let us not be deceived. We too can use them unprofitably, unfaithfully, even in our defense of them. The scriptures were not given by inspiration of God to be defended merely. They were given by inspiration of God to be profitable to his people. We have known men who, for all their defense of the Bible, have neglected to obey it, have neglected to use it, have neglected to add faith. No one is above that temptation in this room. No one is above temptation in this room. We have known or have been men who have, for all their hours of arguing in defense of the text, neglected their wives and their children, their church attendance, their duties at work, evangelism, prayer, and even Bible reading. I'll use one example. A couple of years ago, I had a young man who contacted me online, and he was very excited about the things he was seeing in the confessional text and confessional bibliology movement. And he confessed to me that his, his Bible reading was, was very poor. The only time he ever opened his Bible was to get into these arguments in defense of the text. And I said, brother, you need to step away from that for a minute. Don't defend the text for now. Use it. Use it. Submit yourself to it. Indeed, a robust and continued defense of the inspiration, of the authority, infallibility, and preservation of the word of God is no doubt needed in our day. That's why we're having a conference like this. But let us also be doers of the word and not defenders only. To use the Bible for no other purpose than to defend it, whether defending its doctrines or its text, is to use it unprofitably and unbelievingly. What we need today is whole Bible Christians. Whole Bible Christians. Christians who take every word of God as it is attested to them by the Spirit in the word of God itself, and they take all of it and apply all of it to their life. Men like Josiah, like we heard last night from Reverend McShaffrey, who are under its authority, who subject themselves to the whole of it. Christians who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who have been washed in his blood, filled with his spirit, 
who humbly labor to build their entire lives on the foundation of God's word, every bit of it, every yoda of it. Men who do not doubt it, but cherish and obey it. Give me a man, I can say this as a pastor and any pastor in this room, elder as well, you know this is true. Give me a man any day who is willing to be instructed by God's word, who is willing to conform his beliefs and his life to the doctrines taught in scripture. Give me that man any day over the man who only wants to argue for the Bible, who only wants to defend its teachings, whether it's about itself or about anything else. Yes, being a whole Bible Christian means you believe the scripture is not a work in progress. It isn't. You believe that it's whole, entire, complete, and preserved. Yet more than this, it means being willing to bow in humble submission to all that it says. To extol and trust and love and cherish the Savior that is held forth in it. It means taking what the Bible says we are to believe and how we are to live dead seriously. We also have to say that while it's important for us to hold our convictions about what the Bible teaches seriously, we must do so in a spirit of brotherly love and humility. I have no doubt that there are, as I said earlier, a myriad of differing beliefs about what the Bible teaches on different doctrines in this room. And I'll lay out my own cards. I believe that the Bible is preserved in the received texts of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures. That the English-speaking church is to put it lightly, greatly impoverished by its progressive abandonment of the authorized version. I am a Presbyterian, I am a Paedo-Baptist, I'm post-millennial, and I would consider myself a theonomist. I'm sure at least one of those descriptors has made just about everyone in this room here hiss at some point or cringe. But above all, brothers, I am a Christian. And as a Christian, my allegiance is to the word of God alone. I don't believe anything because I think it's unbiblical or else I, I wouldn't believe it. I don't knowingly believe anything that's an error. I believe it because I think it's what the Bible teaches. And I have no doubt that this is true for all of us in this room who take the Bible seriously, who have re- returned to a historic, Protestant, and biblical view of the Bible itself. So in closing, while we should defend the scripture. And while we can debate doctrine, let us never forget the earthiness of the Bible. The earthiness of the Bible. What I mean by that is that the Bible is meant to be used. It's meant to be loved. It's meant to be believed, obeyed, and proclaimed. Theology, I I say this often at my church, is to be doxological, ending in praise, not speculative, ending in doubt. Theology, Bible study, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, defending the Bible is for the purpose of loving God, knowing God, praising God. God did not give us his word merely for us to defend it against text critics, as important as that is, nor for us to divide over it and devour one another, but that we might live in, by, through, and according to it. Yea, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. Amen.